Today we continue our discussion of the materials used for grave markers by addressing the bad boy of the 19th century, marble. But the history of marble and its use in memorials goes back far, far before that. Today, we're going back to the old country and talking a little bit about the king of marbles, Carrara. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So, marble. It's interesting because I kind of beat myself up a little bit this week. There have been some really interesting papers written on marble. And if you are a longtime listener, you know I, I do stress trying to have factual information. But also, I understand that this needs to be interesting. I exist in a weird liminal state where I do research. And I will flatter myself to say I do pretty good research. I was a teacher for 12 years. I'm not an academic. I don't have my PhD. I have a master's degree in architectural history. I work in the field, but I work as a consultant. So the things that I write are essentially, well, they're not literature. (laughs) That's for sure. And they are not, for the most part, academic level writings. Um, I actually tend to find that I have to dumb my writing down because it's meant for a general public. So I usually lay out bare facts. That's not to say I haven't done some academic writing. I have. And it's something that I chip away at on the side. And it's something that gives me a great deal of pride when I do it because it makes me feel worthy. And this is a bit of a diatribe, but I think it's worth talking about, especially because when I started in this game two years ago, There was only one other cemetery podcast, and it was based in Canada. Since the pandemic has started, I have now seven or eight companions in the game. And I listen to them, because if you are listening to the Spectrum of Cemetery podcast out there right now, there is a lot going on. And podcasts, I don't want to say are looked down upon, because I haven't really talked to a ton of people about their opinion of podcasts. But they are definitely consumable for mass media. That does not necessarily mean that they are not as high a level of workmanship or research as anything else. So while I love to beat myself up about the fact that I am not writing perfectly executed academic papers, essentially, I do a good fraction of the work that would go into an academic paper every week when I produce this podcast. And so I discovered that there were a couple of articles about marble in Markers, the Association for Gravestone Studies publication, that were from before my time with AGS. I started going to AGS in 2017. So, for example, there was a paper that Bruce Elliott wrote about marble in memorialization of the Civil War that I feel like I should have read for this. And Bob Drinkwater, another legend in the field, has written about the mechanization of marble producing in New England. And I probably could have emailed some people, called some people, see if they could have scanned the articles, but I didn't. Because at the end of the day, I also work two jobs. And again, I'm, I'm not saying this to make anybody feel guilty or say, oh, you know what, this is, this is going to be a real crap episode. Because it's not it. 
Because I also recently, if you follow along on Instagram, you might have seen that I picked up a copy of um, Alan I. Ludwig's, you know, seminal work in gravestone studies, which is called Graven Images, New England Stone Carving and its Symbolism. It is the book. I would say the definitive book. It's one that is used in anthropology classes, art history classes, studying early New England gravestones prior to 1815 as an art form. And I find it incredibly intimidating. Ludwig is Yale-educated, and, you know, to me, this bastion. You know, he taught at several noteworthy universities, including the Rhode Island School of Design, which I had a burning desire to go to RISD at one point in my life. It didn't work out. But you know what? Alan Ludwig is doing now. He is in his 80s and he lives in Chelsea in New York City and he is a street photographer and he is documenting street art in his 80s. And if you look at this guy, man, he is cooler in his late 80s than I will ever be in my entire life. And this to me, the swing from a man who in the 60s was producing the definitive work in art history on you know, not just gravestones, but they're carvers and things like that. And can we just say, we can stop doing carver studies. When I was looking through the AGS index of topics from markers articles, out of 59 pages, something like six or seven are just carver studies. I think we can stop doing that. I know that this is a dead horse I'm already beating, but I was just looking at this and it's like the academic who produced all of these things and who taught for years now thinks that street art, and to me, podcasts in many ways are the street art of academia now. Do I have this published in a journal? No. Is it tucked away in some place that's only accessible to a few? No. I love that anybody can listen to this podcast. And if you are interested, and if you want to get a little bit of background, but you don't necessarily have the time to sit down and read a 35-page paper, you know what? You can put this on while you're cooking dinner or while you're going for a run. And I only say this because it's incredibly cool to me that so many of you are listening because you're passionate about cemeteries, you're interested in cemeteries, and we are able to talk about it and we are able to look at them in a way that's accessible to everyone. So diatribe over, but sometimes I get into these funks where I'm like, oh, I, I have very bad imposter syndrome. But... It's exciting, and my hope is is that if people are interested in certain topics, if they are interested in learning about things, this makes it accessible because I am lucky. I have enough you know, baseline academic credits that I can go out there and I can do a little bit more research than the average Joe can. So apologies for my long, drawn-out discussion there. It's just something that's been on my mind, and it's interesting because I hear from a lot of people about the podcast from both sides, people who have a casual interest and people who have an academic interest, and I guess what I'm saying is I don't know why anything has to be strictly one or the other. I think that you can have a platform that's super accessible, that is super relevant, that only sometimes takes itself too seriously. I am working on that. That also produces something that's very enjoyable. So, enough about me. Let's talk about Marble. 
So marble is definitely the sexy material among gravestone markers. You know, slate is sort of seen as the old fogey material. Granite is very stern, but there is something about marble. Now, I say that everybody knows this, and I'm not necessarily talking about gravestones here, because if you look back at marble, and marble has a long history, um, not just in terms of existence, but in terms of use, Unfortunately, gravestones are not the best representative examples of marble and its capabilities. You often do, and I can remember I posted a picture that I took at Spring Grove in Cincinnati. You can often find little features that for whatever reason are kind of hooded and have been protected from damage from acid rain that hint at just how beautiful and how intricately carved marble gravestones were when they were new. But 100, 150 years of deterioration, I can't say that this morning, has taken its toll. And so often that softened, melted look to marble, it really does not belie just how beautiful it was. But almost all of us have seen a marble sculpture in a museum that has been in ideal atmospheric conditions, and these do. So there is an example I am thinking about. It's at the High Museum here in Atlanta, and it is, and I, this, I'm just riffing off the top of my head here, so I don't know the actual sculptor's name or the details. I want to say it's a Rodin. I could be wrong. Um, But it was the sculpture that was dedicated to the folks from the High Museum here in Atlanta who had flown over to Europe to gather support and to gather artifacts when they were opening the museum. And they were all killed in a plane crash. I'm sure half of Atlanta's historians are cringing right now because I don't know these people's names, but I'm not from Atlanta. I know the story. Um, And this sort of, I don't know if she's the veiled virgin or the mourning version, but something like that. She is a young woman who is veiled. And the translucency and the quality of marble gives you the idea that she has a face that is covered with a transparent veil and you can see through it. And that's what marble is. Marble has this luminous, almost waxy quality that gives sculpture a lifelike appearance. And whether you're looking something like the Laocoon in the Vatican Museums, whether you are looking at Michelangelo's David in Florence, whether you are looking at the Pieta, the reason that these sculptures are so affecting is because of what they are made out of. Marble as a rock just takes on a lifelike appearance that is almost uncanny. Even when it is not a lifelike color, because I'm going to talk quite a bit about Carrara marble, it's still there's something about it that captures the humanity of the subject. And certainly humans are not the only things 
likewise, you can have a vase or an urn or, or different things that are carved out of marble that just the details that they take on make it look so lifelike in appearance. This is the reason that it has been chosen for so many years. Now, to start off with, how many years? Well, thanks to archaeology, we actually do have an idea. The first recorded use of marble for a gravestone, yes, for a gravestone, we actually have a date on, which is pretty cool. And that is 155 AD. So, yes, I'm using BCAD. I know that's not the thing anymore, but... So, roughly 2,000 years ago. Let's call it roughly 2,000 years ago. And this was a gravestone set over a base for a man named Marco Marcello, who, as you might guess, was a Roman by profession. And he was the consul who defeated the Lyurgi Apuani people. Um... I'm going to get more to this particular region. This particular area was known as Luni, historically. And we're talking about the Northern Alps in Italy. So the closest major city is going to be Pisa, of the Leaning Tower fame. So this was essentially the Roman who had defeated the tribal people of the Alps in that particular region. And so when he died, there was a tombstone made for him. And this tombstone was later discovered in the archaeological dig in the ruins of the city of Luni. Okay. Is this the earliest recorded use of marble? Hell no. But it is the earliest recorded grave marker. And this is a cemetery podcast, in case you forgot. So I'm starting there. But we do know that marble has been used that far back. In fact, most of the recognizable monuments that you can think of, if you have been to Rome or if you were forced to sit through a video about Rome, which I'm sure you were at some point during school. So Trajan's Column, for example is going to be made out of marble from this exact same region. Many of these heraldic arcs, things like that, you know, the Arch of Constantine, blah, 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 etc., etc. I don't need to do a full Roman history here, tour of Rome. But they recognize the value, they recognize the skill. Michelangelo worked in marble quarrying, His understanding of sculpture mainly comes from his work in marble quarries and wanting to work with it and recognizing the potential of certain materials. So the majority of marble in this part of the world, in Italy, and I say this because this is the rock star, there are marble deposits all around the world, but mainly what I will start off with is the commune of Massa, what is known as the commune of Massa, which is essentially a strip of land that is almost entirely marble. Now, before I get too deep into the Commune of Massa, the Apio and Alps, all of that fun stuff, let's talk a little bit about what marble actually is. So like last week with slate, marble is a metamorphic rock. In this case, it is metamorphic limestone, which is primarily made up of calcite and dolomite. 
In ancient Greek, the word marble means crystalline rock, though there is a lot of dispute over whether it came from Greek. There are a number of different entomological explanations for where the word marble comes from. Marble is unique because it's an interlocking mosaic of carbonate crystals, which is both good and bad. It is good because it gives you all the properties that you want for sculpting, for polishing, all of the things that marble is useful for. It is bad because that is one of the things that causes it to deteriorate so quickly. Pure white marble, which is generally what you see used for sculpture, most of it from Carrara, but obviously it comes from other places around the world, um, is made from silicate pore limestone. So essentially, this all comes down to the minerals that are present in it. So the more silicates that are present, the more color you are going to get. And pretty much all colors come from different concentrations of materials. Veining Likewise, it comes from essentially impurities in the limestone. So before the limestone is treated with heat and pressure, which will transform it into marble, there's other stuff in there, whether it is clay, silt, sand, iron, if you want those nice red veins, other things, different types of oxides, chert, basically other rocks sandwiched in between rocks. So for example, green marble which had its heyday for a while in kitchens. Um, that results from serpentine in magnesium-rich limestone. So I just picked one color as an example. Obviously, you know that there are red marbles, there are green marbles, there are pink marbles, there are black marbles. You know, there, there are a lot of different colors, and they come from around the world. One of the most interesting examples of this is Queen Victoria and Prince Albert's burial place um, over in the UK, and the entire chamber, it's a little overwhelming. I've never been there, but I've seen plenty of pictures. If you look at it, there are, I don't know if it's all marble, but marble and granite, I believe, from every place that was part of the British Empire while she reigned. So that's a lot, and it's very diverse. Um, there's a great photograph of this on the cover of a book called The Victorian Celebration of Death. And that was the cover. And I can remember seeing it and just being blown away because she and Prince Albert both have effigies of them, not not in their bad times, but in their, their youngest, finest, most impressive, carved in white marble on top of the tomb. So wide varieties of marbles, but obviously for both cemeteries and sculpture, what you most commonly see is white marble, which is going to be the silicate pore limestone. Now, it is important to note here, and this is something I didn't know until I did this research, that a lot of what we call marble is actually unmetamorphosized limestone. And probably the most common use of this in the U.S. is what's called Tennessee marble, which is essentially it's limestone, but it hasn't had that pressure and heat which transforms it. Unmetamorphosized marble has a little bit rougher, almost Swiss cheese-like appearance, and it's often a cheaper option. And so you will see it used particularly for buildings, 
But this is something I didn't realize. But it's one of those things that like if you're not an expert and you haven't spent a lot of time with stone or you're not about to invest in a very expensive stone countertop, I'm not sure how much people actually look into this. In terms of properties of marble, the first is obviously the fact that it does have this incredible sculptability. It is relatively soft. And when I talk a little bit about how marble is processed, I was actually quite impressed. The second is that it has what's known as a low index of refraction. And a low index of refraction essentially means that rather than light bouncing off things, reflecting. It actually absorbs light. So this actually happens up to usually a couple of inches in marble. And so because it absorbs light, it softens the light. And as a result, this is what gives sculptures made of marble their lifelike appearance, that sort of waxy, luminous glow. And it's because the light is not bouncing off it. When light bounces off something, it brings attention to the surface and it very clearly makes a statement about how where one thing ends and another thing doesn't. When the lines blur a little bit and when the appearance blurs, that's when you get a more lifelike appearance. And I remember hearing something similar and I fully admit I am not an animation person. But I remember them talking about when Pixar first came out and how Pixar was such a high-quality product. But the downside was that it could not produce lifelike images. And that's the reason that in the earlier Pixar films, you had non you had things that were anthropomorphic, so think Toy Story, obviously, sort of like the bust on the scene first hit for Pixar. Toys are anthropomorphic. They are like humans, especially with, you know, Buzz like Garam, Woody and all that stuff. But they're not actually humans because, I mean, I don't recall that much about that movie because I haven't probably seen it since 1995. But the humans in it are sort of caricatures and they're, you know, because they're shown from the toy level, you don't see their whole body. But that's because Pixar did not at the time, and I, I know that things have gotten a lot better in animation, did not have the technology to make those kind of really crisp lines which made up the toys go away. So think of marble being kind of like that. Marble is really high quality at being able to do that. The portrayal of the toys is a little bit more like granite, especially polished granite because it is so rough and it is so cut. And that will make it really desirable for certain types of monuments in the future when we talk about granite next week. But that's kind of how I think of marble is marble is kind of like old school animation where it's a little bit misty, a little bit blurred around the edges. It's not meant to... It's certainly imitating life, but it, it, it's a very good imitation of life. All right, weird animation spiel over. For construction, and I only say this is because most of us have seen buildings that are made of marble, at least in part. This is when they tend to prefer polished marble. That is also the big difference between granite and marble for gravestones. 
virtually no marble that you see, unless it is on a mausoleum and is used for construction purposes, is going to be polished. Whereas on buildings, they like it to be polished. And again, because polishing increases that refraction. And so it looks less lifelike. It doesn't take on the details. It, it just is a completely different look. All right. Let's come back around now to the commune of Massa, which is in the Apuan Alps. Like I said, it's about 32 miles from the city of Pisa. It has been used in part for some form of mining and quarrying for about 2,000 years. And the reason is, is that from about 5,500 feet above sea level to an estimated 500 feet down, it is solid marble. This was actually really fascinating to do the research on Carrara, and I found a wonderful article written for Scientific American in 1907, November of 1907, that I spent quite a bit of time reading. Now, I had been under the impression for a while that one of the reasons that marble quarrying here in the United States had grown so big was because the mines at Carrara were essentially tapped out. I have read kind of disputed facts about that. I think it's partially true. And from what I read in this article, this article was really interesting because when I started reading it, I kept thinking it was contemporary and then I realized it was actually written 120 years ago. Is that prior to modern technology, the way that marble was harvested was actually incredibly wasteful. But it was wasteful because they wanted to keep it cost efficient and they just didn't have the technology to fix it. So what they did was that old-time quarrymen took the convenient cuts and deposits, and these were essentially on the slopes. Now, how far back are we talking here? Well, the interesting thing about the quarries here, or the mines here, is that these have always been owned by the state. They are not owned by any private individual or company. Private individuals and companies work within the commune of Massa. But let's put it this way. Back in the 1100s, in 1183, the Bishop of Looney, remember the destroyed city I told you about, actually was the one who was in charge of all of the marble harvesting. So you might say, what's the big deal? Oh, just just means the state's making a lot of money. Well, the state did make a lot of money off marble of the years, but it also meant that they were able to regulate how things were done, and they kept things antiquated for a long time. I talked earlier about how I was picking on myself about not reading those AGS articles about marble, and Bob Drinkwaters in particular. I've seen like a few screenshots from it and talking about how. Marble production became more mechanized in Vermont, which I'll be talking about the Vermont marble industry later. That does not appear to have been happening here. There was some technology. I'm going to talk a little bit about transportation and things like that. But for the most part, because it was owned by the state, they actually kept things fairly primitive for a very, very long time. So these old-time quarrymen would go for the most obvious deposits, which were often on the slopes of mountains. So they would allow the waste 
to just fall into the valley. So they would take what they wanted, anything that was excess, just sloughed off the side of the mountain, and it all collected at the bottom. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was bad because they considered it waste then. It just wasn't the easiest to get out. And it was too expensive and too labor-intensive to go down into the valley and pick it up. But what they were doing around the turn of the century was that they were actually starting to use steam-powered equipment to haul some of the stuff that had fallen into the valleys out and to use it because it was just as high a quality as what was being quarried 100 years before, and it was still in demand. At the turn of the 19th century, which is one of the periods when this this area was most productive, they were sending about 200,000 tons from 600 quarries. Now, the town of Carrara is not the only place in the commune of Massa that actually produces marble. Just for convenience sake, we'll kind of call it all Carrara marble. It's obviously the most recognizable for its pure white appearance. I guarantee you, you have seen at least something made of Carrara marble. Now, the marble works themselves were not here. They were in the cities of Genoa and Leghorn. And this meant that the marble mostly had to be transported before it was worked. However, in this whole area, in the commune of Massa area, there was roughly a population of 75,000. Of that, 6,000 men worked in quarries. So this is the primary breadwinner for the entire area. And what you'll find is in areas that have big marble deposits, they dominate the economy. You'll find the same thing when we go switch over to the U.S. and start talking about Vermont. Now, the reason I'm starting with Carrara is because it is the most immediately recognizable. And it was extremely desirable even in U.S. cemeteries for a long time. So you might ask, how did they actually harvest this marble? The process is known as taking bench walls through fracture. So what they would do is that the head of the team, the foreman, the leader of the quarry, would go out and pick locations to drill a borehole. And these boreholes had to be in strategic places if you wanted the whole piece to break off. The idea is that you do as little damage to the stone as possible when you are getting it off. So they would drill these kind of guide holes all the way along. And these boreholes were small, done with usually hand drills at this point. Then what they would do is they would enlarge the hole using nitric acid. Now, if you are a longtime listener, if you listen to any of the preservation episodes I did with Ashley, you know that acid is the enemy of marble. Acid, particularly sulfuric acid, which is found in acid rain, has a chemical reaction with marble that starts to dissolve it into water, carbon dioxide, and then most importantly, it starts to dissolve the calcium carbonate that is in marble. So nitric acid does the same thing. It doesn't completely dissolve it, but it makes that borehole a little bit bigger. And then what they do is they take those holes and they fill it with blasting powder. Blasting powder is essentially gunpowder 
on steroids. They used blasting powder for a reason. The main reason that they use blasting powder is that it is far more stable than dynamite. Dynamite, which is based, uh, it's based as nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin has a tendency to leak, um, which is bad. And it's very unstable, very unpredictable. And so blasting powder helped them to cut down on accidents. Then they would ignite that powder. Um, This was originally done, and I read an interesting article about this, actually with tools from a blacksmith. So the majority of quarries had a blacksmith on staff because they needed to repair tools, et cetera, et cetera. The same reason that a farm might have one. But what the blacksmith would do is would take a iron rod, about three quarters of an inch square, heat it in the fire until it was red hot. Then a skilled worker would go igniting the powder. And the whole idea was that by the time... You lit the first fuse and you had to run fast enough that by the time you hit the last fuse, you could die for cover. And so I consulted uh, my metals expert, um, Tomb of the Views resident blacksmith on this, and he quoted about one to three minutes. So you would have between one and three minutes to scurry like a little rat all the way along these fuses to light them, duck for cover before you got blown sky high. Which I don't know about you, that gives me anxiety just thinking about it. Eventually, they would use um, like an electric spark to do this, but that came later. So what would happen then is that it would slough off, essentially. They would kind of clean up the rough excess as they went. It would slide down a wooden sledge that would kind of guide it to the bottom where initially it would be put onto a specially designed cart pulled by oxen as many as 20 because as I mentioned last week when I was talking about slate this stuff is heavy really heavy then they would do the initial processing so even though the marble works were far away in Genoa and Leghorn here what they would do is they would essentially cut it with what to me and you would look like a buck saw So, you know, the ones that you see in old-timey movies of lumberjacks where there's a guy on either end? Essentially, it's that. You can understand why they need to have a blacksmith on staff. And so they would do wet cutting, which I'm sure you have seen on TV somewhere, where they keep the marble wet, and they would use this extremely sharp saw to cut it into more manageable pieces. Now, as you can imagine, the oxen were somewhat cumbersome, expensive to keep. So as soon as they could, they actually built a marble railroad. The marble railroad comes in in 1876, and it functions until right after World War II. And railroads are huge. The same way that the shipping of marble monuments here in the United States will find a rise in the railroad era, the same thing happens here. What they would do is they would transport it down um, to either Avenza or the Gulf of Laergia. And it would be shipped from there. And then it would go off to the places where it would actually be processed so it could become profitable. Um, Like most railroads in the post-war period, it does die off. And then what they do is they actually take the rail, they pull up the rails, take the rail bed, and they actually 
pave it. And so it becomes a road. And after that, obviously, it's a lot cheaper to have trucks and vehicles do it. I was not shocked, but uh, pretty surprised that electricity does not come to Harara until 1910. So while places like Vermont and other you know, much, I don't want to say more civilized, but, but places that were not government controlled. Um, and I'm sure Mussolini had a thing to say, a thing or two to say about, uh, keeping the boys down in the quarries, but in other areas that may have had easier access to technology prior to this mechanization happens like in the post civil war era here in the U S. So Carrara is interesting in a number of respects, but you can't talk about marble without talking about Carrara. Which leads me to Vermont. So let's go across the ocean. And it is an American Cemetery podcast. So let's talk a little bit about Vermont marble. Because it's a good story. So to start off with, and I had alluded to this last week, let's talk a little bit about the process through which marble becomes the material of choice for gravestone markers. So when I left off with my story of slate, it was right around the turn of the 19th century. Now, I can't give you a definitive date for when slate completely fell out of popularity and when marble began to rise. The really easy date that I could cheat with would be 1831 with the founding of Mount Auburn. But certainly anyone who has walked through a cemetery, particularly in New England, knows that there are older marble stones than that. And I think that you can make the argument, now I alluded earlier in the episode to the book Graven Images, and that puts sort of the end of the cutoff date at 1815. So 16 years before Mount Auburn is founded. I would tend to agree with that. It's sort of like the argument that Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, Tals, I know I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, coexisted for a certain period of history. And the fact is, it's not like overnight somebody flipped on a light switch and suddenly white marble was the gravestone of choice. I think that some started to become more readily available and then they caught on. So I think that for sort of a liminal period, white marble headstones were probably still very, very expensive, still imported, still sort of finding their grounding in the U.S. The majority of people were still using slate, but then slowly it crept up. And we can certainly see this in the existence of gravestones, even in the South. I know if you've listened to my episodes on, say, Thomas Jefferson and things like that, by the time that these gentlemen die in the 1820s, marble has certainly become more popular. So I think that we start to see the rise of marble at the turn of the 19th century, and it only becomes increasingly popular until you reach the founding of Mount Auburn in 1831, when at that point Mount Auburn actually bans slate stones. And the reasons that marble is popular, I've kind of already alluded to, the fact that it is eminently carvable, it looks just so damn impressive in terms of being sparkly and luminescent, 
but also because it is so mutable in terms of what you can produce with it. And they look sad now, but when you think about the tiny little lamb markers, white lamb markers that are so popular for children in the Victorian era, those are not big pieces of marble. So while marble itself is an expensive material, and I read that quote from the minister in Salem last week where he talks about the price of a slate headstone versus a marble headstone, how much more expensive they are, they did come in a wide range. And this is true of most grave markers. But unlike slate, which appears to be pretty standardized, and it depends on where you go to look at slate headstones, but while there are really tiny slate headstones, for the most part, they're pretty equal in size. I posted a picture of myself next to one of these really monster slate headstones up in Harvard, Massachusetts over Christmas. And I'm five feet, four inches, and this stone was taller than I am. And I know that the bedding plane, so the and the portion of it that goes underground is probably even bigger. So you're talking, this is like a seven foot tall slate headstone probably. And if you've ever seen a slate headstone that's been pulled up and put in a museum, I have seen them, two thirds of it is underground because it has to, so it doesn't keel over. Marble being a little bit thicker, a little bit more standardized, it's going to really pave the way for what I tend to think of as the golden age of cemetery monuments. Odds are if somebody's been pulled in by a beautiful cemetery, if they've been pulled in by a really sexy marker, it's going to be a marble marker. Now, likewise, marble also deteriorates. And this is something I don't know if I necessarily need to get into too much today because I've covered it on a number of episodes, mainly back in the Ashley era. But the deterioration of marble due to atmospheric pollution, which changes the pH in the clouds, adds sulfuric acid to rain, which causes the severe deterioration of marble. It's an ongoing problem. It's not something that just affects cemeteries. It's something that also affects buildings that have statues, um, buildings that have surface marble. All of these are major, major issues. It's something, unfortunately, that is almost impossible to reverse. You can try to mitigate for some of the damage. You can try to repair some of the damage. But for the most part, what's done is done. And this is something that if you live in a major metropolitan area, which most of us do, even if we live in the suburbs, you have seen in your cemeteries. Occasionally, I will come across a pretty rural cemetery that's not anywhere near a city that hasn't had a lot of industrial pollution, and you'll look at the marble, and it looks different. Not to say that there isn't some form of acid rain, but in terms of like the overall pH of the water is not quite as acidic. You can see what some of these marble markers looked like, or they would have looked like at the time. All right, I digress. I promised you I would talk about Vermont. So... Vermont, like Carrara, everyone always knew that there was some sort of quarrying potential there. It's theorized that local headstones were produced in Vermont as early as 1785, based on surveys of cemeteries and things like that. 
Dorset, Vermont is probably the first commercial quarry that existed. Basically, there are lots of small quarries that are quarrying in small amounts. Now, unlike last week when I talked about slate, where slate was also being used for a lot of other things, marble at this point wasn't really being used on a large scale for anything other than headstones. Now, eventually it will be. I'm going to fast forward to a man by the name of Redfield Proctor. And Redfield Proctor is an interesting guy because he had a vision. And he looked at the small quarrying operations, which were operating throughout the 19th century in Vermont. And he saw essentially untold millions. I read a very interesting article by a man named Edwin Burridge Child, who wrote for Scribner's Magazine. If you're familiar with the 19th century, Scribner's was very popular. And he described Vermont as, quote, the green state, which is just a thin veneer over the white mountain marbles, the white marble mountains beneath. It was such a lovely quote, and I screwed it up. The green state is just a thin veneer over the white marble mountains beneath. And this is very much true of Vermont. Just like the commune of Massa and Carrara, there are stupid amounts of marble. In fact, Vermont continues to be one of the largest marble producers anywhere. So he saw a couple of things. Not only the vast amounts of marble, but he also saw that Vermont had abundant water power. It had a sand supply. Now, this is something I didn't really talk about with Carrara, but sand is actually really important for packing and transporting marble. He also saw that the quarry sites were accessible in ways that they were not in other places, which when I described the whole oxen train road situation, getting the marble shipped, accessibility is important. Going back to slate again from last week, remember slate was mostly quarried locally and it was mostly processed locally because stone is heavy. Transporting it is expensive and time consuming. And the last thing he saw was that being able to build a railroad meant that you could easily get equipment in. So not only could you transport the marble, but you could also bring equipment in. So he took an area that was known as Sutherland Falls, which Sutherland Falls had several quarrying operations at that point. It was essentially a village. And in 1880, he founded the Vermont Marble Company. Eventually, within the first five years, he would expand it to a massive output. His company, the Vermont Marble Company, would eventually acquire rights to all of the marble deposits, not just in Vermont, but also in Colorado and Alaska. He would have offices and sales teams all over the country. At the peak of the Vermont Marble Company, it employed 4,000 men. They had multiple quarries also across the U.S., and they were exporting roughly a million cubic feet of marble annually. Just stupid, stupid outputs. Now, of course, this all starts in the town of what we today call Proctor, Vermont, of course, named after Colonel Redfield Proctor himself. This becomes a hub for immigration. 
he has a lot of rough quarry workers who are early Irish immigrants. In addition, he also has skilled labor, mostly coming from Italy. Because guess what? They come from the commune of Massa, and this is how they have their experience. He also will have a number of Eastern European immigrants. Really, this becomes a hub for immigration, and a lot of people get their U.S. citizenship through being able to take these old world traditions and apply them to new world technologies. And the Vermont Marble Company, as I alluded, is is also where, you know, the mechanization, particularly using both water power and steam power to process stone, they all come from there. Redfield Proctor will do very, very well for himself. He will eventually become a state senator and secretary of war. He uses this influence, so first of all, his influence and money help him to gain these positions. But likewise, having the power and the influence in the Senate also allows him to really parlay his business into becoming a huge supplier for the U.S. government. So a lot of the things that are built, so for example, the Supreme Court building, the Jefferson Memorial, it goes on and on. Much of D.C. is made of Proctor Marble. And I I had always referred to it as Proctor Marble because I knew it came from Proctor, Vermont, and I knew about Redfield Proctor, and I've been correcting people like, no, you have to say Vermont, Vermont Marble Company. I'm sorry. If you read this story, Redfield Proctor is the visionary. He might not have the name recognition of Andrew Carnegie, or the Rockefellers, but you know what? He did that. He did that for this industry. He did that for an industry which in many ways people could have seen as being archaic, especially when you compare it with railroads or standard oil or things like that. But this man had a vision, and it's one that in many ways continues because unlike other parts of the world where marble quarries have been tapped out or whether they're in far less demand, The quarries that he built, now it is estimated that many of them are completely tapped out. So it depends on where you are looking in Vermont. A lot of these quarries are now inactive. But for the most part, his, you know, kind of peak quarry is in a place called Danby. And Danby is still active. It is today owned by... Don't think that I don't mention things for a reason. R.E.D. Graniti and Marco Zuccelli Marmi of Carrara, Italy. So Carrara Marble, the OG marble, if you will, now owns the Vermont Marble Company. And yes, in case you were wondering, if you have a burning desire to see this, there is also a Vermont Marble Company Museum. In fact, I actually... <laughs> Never be said that I do not dive deep for you guys. The Vermont Tourism website actually has a marble trail that you could take. I have done the Bourbon Trail in Kentucky. Something tells me that the marble trail, unless you are a taphophile, might be slightly less exciting than the Bourbon Trail. But they do have a trail through several counties in Vermont, which takes you to quarries. It takes you to major marble manufacturing. It also takes you to several cemeteries where you can see some of the 
most impressive examples of marble work. Because likewise, just like you're attracting skilled artisans who can work in the quarries, also you're attracting skilled monument makers. And anybody will tell you that some of these really are some of the most impressive monuments that you can see anywhere. Now, in no way did he plan this, or they plan this, I should say. So if you are in the Taffal community on Instagram, you probably are familiar with Corpse Alter, boyfriend and girlfriend, and they travel around and they are completely amateur Taffiles. They are artists in real life. They have recently taken a little vacation up to Bar, Vermont, which bar I will talk a lot about next week when I'm talking about granite. But they took a little Vermont taffophile vacation, which I thought was amazing, and it just happened to coincide with this. But just be aware of the fact that if you are interested in this side, in the material side of headstones, a lot of this infrastructure still exists. And this is something that I didn't necessarily realize. You know, you see a lot of empty quarries. There is a slate quarry that's abandoned in the town where I used to teach in Massachusetts, but these type of active quarries, I knew that they existed, but I assume they existed on a smaller scale. The first time I can remember actually learning about Vermont Marble was actually I saw a segment on CBS Sunday Morning. Great show. If you don't watch it, you really should. Be an old lady like me. I love CBS Sunday Morning. And they had gone to Vermont to watch the headstone of the last surviving veteran of World War I being made. And so they actually took you down and showed you where the marble was quarried and all of that. It was, it was pretty amazing. I loved it. Because, not surprisingly, one of the largest contractors that still purchases Vermont marble is the Department of Veteran Affairs. And so I read one article that was saying that like their annual output from Vermont, and keep in mind that it is regional. So for example, if you order a veteran's headstone down here in Georgia, where I am, you're going to be getting local marble. You're not going to be getting marble from Vermont. But if you are buried at Arlington, your marble is coming from Vermont. Vermont essentially supplies um, New England south through New York, through parts of the Mid-Atlantic, and they supply Arlington. Which, there's a pretty substantial number. Now, the numbers have dropped because Arlington is filling up fast. But the estimate was something to the tune of, you know, 21,000 headstones a year are being produced up there. That's a lot. And, you know, if you are interested, there are some pretty good articles because there's actually a veteran from Operation Iraqi Freedom who actually now works up in Vermont. He is from there originally, and when he left the military, he went back, and he's now making military headstones, which, interesting turnaround, but also I can understand it. The production is also pretty quick. It's a 10 to 20 day production period for a government order headstone. Um, I would imagine that the high profile ones tend to get rushed along. Just understand too that these things kind of ebb and flow. So for example, in the 1990s, like the late 1990s through like the mid 2000s. So up until about 2008, 2008 was estimated to be the peak of death of World War II veterans, which 
my grandfather who fought in World War II, he died in 2008. So I believe that. And he was, and so he, at that point, he who was very young, he had joined up at 16. He was 81 when he died. But seeing that, you know, the majority of folks would have been a little bit older, most of the guys who were in their early to mid-20s were probably in their mid to late 80s at the time. It makes sense that the peak of about... 350,000 headstones had to be made that year just for World War II veterans alone. That's a lot of headstones for any kind of production system. And that, keep in mind, is only for about half because only about half of veterans opt for a government-issued headstone. And that's assuming that all of them choose the upright headstones, which only the upright headstones are made of white marble. If you choose the garden-style marker, it's either granite or bronze. Which is a lot of information, I know. But I bring it up just because we don't tend to think of it. And if you go to a military cemetery, damn, it's impressive just how much marble there is there. If there is one thing that you can say for the military, it's they love their mechanization and they love that. And it is these type of marble quarries that allow for it. And it is also these type of marble quarries that will probably continue to be in production for as long as we can keep them in production because it is now part of the expected tradition of the military. They also produce replacement headstones because the Department of Veteran Affairs will replace headstones that are damaged or in bad condition. So often you will walk through a military cemetery. I know that we have um, the National Cemetery right up in Marietta here. Um, lovely, lovely spot. I am still petitioning because I really want to live in the empty caretaker's cottage there. But you will go through and you'll say, this is a Civil War headstone. Why does it look so brand spanking new? Well, it is brand spanking new because they discarded the old one and they have replaced it. I remember, and I can't remember what episode it was that I reported this, but I was talking about a guy who was trying to get, you know, every veteran's marker that has a mistake on it replaced and things like that. I do struggle with things like that because, you know, they are producing these at the expense of John Q. Taxpayer. And while I agree that every veteran does deserve a headstone free of charge, I don't know if for like a tiny typo we really need to fix it, but... That might be an unpopular opinion. I guess I'm just trying to be practical. So these quarries continue to output, and that's not to say that they are not still producing monuments. There are marble monuments still being produced. It's just the number, because we know the damage, because granite has really surpassed it in terms of popularity more than a century ago, marble is just not as common today. That's not to say that people aren't still making sculptures, that people aren't still making artwork out of it. The famous sculpture, the Monument of Marriage in Woodlawn in the Bronx, which is now cast in bronze, I know I have talked about that. Ashley and I talked about it on the um, LGBTQ um, episode two years ago. That's a perfect example. It was originally carved in marble, which it is now in a museum, because it started to deteriorate so quickly being in Greater New York. Long term, if people are making impressive sculptures now, it, it just especially if they're going to be outside, it's probably not going to be marble. So as beautiful and as sexy as marble is, it sort of had its heyday. And while it was considered to be the biggest and the brightest and the newest thing at the time, the Industrial Revolution that was happening concurrently with it also caused the downfall of marble. 
Now, next week when we continue on to Granite, I'm going to tell a likewise story of the same way that the slate to marble transition sort of overlapped, the same thing will happen with marble and granite. Granite, far less sexy than marble, but certainly the potential of it is so much bigger. So we'll continue to talk materials next week. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, I would so, so appreciate if you could log on to your podcast app of choice, whether it is Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, etc. Leave a rating or review. Five-star ratings, particularly on Apple Podcasts, make me so much more searchable, make me jump up to the head of searchability, and just allow more people who are interested in topics to find me. So really, it takes a couple of minutes, but it is greatly appreciated. If you have any thoughts, concerns, ideas, please reach out to the view podcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in more fun tidbits and facts and pretty pictures, follow along to the view podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. Got some fun stuff almost every week. So hopefully that will keep you entertained in the, in the bored moments of your life. But for now, I hope everyone has a wonderful week. I am Liz Clappen. And this is Tomb of the View.